Welcome to another episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Dominic Tyre, and I'm Pharma Forum's creative and editorial director. Now, this instalment marks a return to the podcast for Professor Brian D. Smith, who is a leading authority on the evolution of the life sciences industry, with a 40-year career that has seen him move from research to marketing to academia. He previously appeared on episode 6 to talk about what makes a modern and successful marketing team. For episode 15, we met up to discuss his new book on leadership in the life sciences industry. You can find more details on this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other instalments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and Stitcher, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. So, Brian, well, welcome back to the Pharma Forum uh, podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking today about your um, book and some of the lessons from it. So, the book is uh, Leadership in the Life Sciences uh, 10 Lessons from the C Suite of Pharmaceutical and Medical Technology Companies. There's a million books out there, of course, on, on leadership. Why have you written another one? Why are you adding to that that uh, canon? Well, it's a good question because you're right. I think when I started thinking about the book, I did a quick search on Amazon and put in you know, leadership in the management and business section. And there were, I can't remember the number, a, a large six-figure number of books. And, and discussing you know, the dinner table with my wife, and her first question was, because this is book number seven, this is my seventh book, you said, you're going to write a book on leadership. Why then? On earth are you going to do that? And, and it was a, a fair question because there are many Asian books. But actually, the, the birth of the book really happened on an aeroplane. Yeah, so I was on my way to Milan where, where I work a lot of the time. And I was chatting, as you do, on a, a business flight to the chap next to me who'd had a very interesting career um, as a in a leadership role, but in several industries. I think from memory it was... Uh, cars, automobiles, um, retail, and, and, and some of the consumer sector. And he was a really interesting guy. And um, I commented on how he'd worked in all of these different industries, and in my industry, pharmaceuticals and medical technology, that was quite unusual to move around between sectors. Um, and he said something to the effect of, well, you know, leadership is leadership. I nodded politely and got off the plane and got on the bus taking me to the university. And as I sat on the bus, I thought, hmm, I'd never thought about it before, but that's quite a bold thing to say, quite a big statement to make, that leadership is leadership, whether you're leading any sort of company. And I thought as I sat on the bus, because you know, is leading Walmart the same as leading Novartis is leading um, McDonald's the same as leading um, a specialist biotech company. The truth is, I, I, I don't know. At least I did not know then before I began that phase of the research. But I, I was conscious that this was a big claim. It, it's like saying, well, I was here one, one design and it works everywhere. And then the other thing that I picked up from looking at you know, the leadership literature, both the academic literature and the, um, the books that you see on Amazon or in Hebrew bookshops, is that as well as 
all being based on leadership is leadership is leadership. Um, they're all prescriptive. They're all, this is how you should do it. And I, I sat there on the bus thinking, this doesn't feel, this feels like an under-researched area. Here's an assertion being made that leadership is the same in any industry. And this is how you should do it, regardless of context. Uh, and that doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. This is something we, we need to, to research. Because, of course, remember, I'm coming from an evolutionary science background. Some of my previous books have been about the evolution of business models in the area. And this idea that um, you know one form fits all doesn't fit with evolutionary thinking. You know, you wouldn't say, you know, here is one type of animal. It will thrive in any environment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, human beings are the only ones that do that. So um, I thought this was something worth researching and worth writing about, and that's what led to the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so in putting the book together, then, well, how how did you go about that? Who who was involved? Well, it, it's a kind of truth from the horse's mouth story. So I wanted to know about leadership in the life sciences industry, and the only people to ask are leaders in the life science industry. So I wanted to speak to a lot of people who are CEOs or titles vary these days. So sometimes people are effectively CEOs, but they have some other title, but they're in the C-suite um, of pharmaceutical, medtech, biotech, IVD companies. So I wanted to get a, um, a selection of people. Um, so I approached a whole lot of companies, and in the end, I interviewed 23 CEOs and um from approximately 50-50 medtech and pharma. Um, uh, some of them were for huge companies like, like Devaltis and, and uh, Smith Nephew. Others uh, worked for smaller companies, but the, even the guys that worked for smaller companies hadn't worked for the large companies. So I think I calculated back of the envelope calculation that the 23 people I met had over 700 years of leadership experience in the industry. So um, I thought that was a decent sample. I thought if these guys don't know what's different about the industry or don't know about leadership in the industry, then, then nobody does do. Mm. So it was those guys that I sat down and, and asked my questions of. And certainly flicking through through my copy of, of your book, uh, it's a really impressive list, both of, of companies that are involved in, in, in the research, but also the individuals as well. I mean, there's a number I recognise from having interviewed them uh, myself for other more journalistic projects. Um, I loved it. I loved the interview process. They, they, they were all, um, once they understood what I was trying to research, and, and a lot of them were very familiar with my work anyway. So, that, you know, I read some of my earlier books. Um, they were all um, f- fascinated and very giving in their answers. You know, very open. Um, because I was answer, asking questions about something very fundamental to them, you know, the industry and leadership. Uh, they, a lot of them spoke very freely and, and, and openly and, and honestly and, 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 you know, told me things that you might not have expected to hear. So it was a pleasure to, to listen to them. Mm. And then you're hearing from companies like uh, Roche and Boeing Ringelheim, the ones, mm. others that you mentioned, also uh, Proteus and, and, and UCB and, and many others. Mm. So what, what were the key questions, the, the, the actual questions that you were asking these, well, these people? There's a certain, you know, as, a, as, a, as an academic researcher, you're taught to approach research in a very sort of methodical way to make sure that you get the answers to the questions that you're interested in and that you don't 
lead the audience and you get what I think. So I started off with uh, essentially the question of, is our industry different? Is the industry that we work in, is it different from other industries in any way? Um, and then to the extent that it is, if it is different at all, how do those differences change what you do as a leader? What, In other words, what lessons have you learned about, first of all, how the industry is different and then about how to adapt to that situation? Um, and that, in essence, was, was what I was asking. Obviously, there are you know formal techniques and laddering techniques for how you ask the questions and how you design it and so on. But um, that basically is what I was asking. Is our industry different? Well, if it's different, what have you done about that? How have you adapted to being a leader? in this uh, unusual environment. Certainly looking at some of the uh, previous leaders at, at larger pharmaceutical companies, um, there aren't that many that, that have come from outside life sciences that don't have a background in the industry. And certainly maybe um, Jeffrey Kindler, ex-Pfizer, maybe there's an example from, from Novartis, going going back a few a few leaders from the, 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 no, the current it's, 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 really, it's really quite unusual and um, and as I spoke to them, I began to get to realize that because they'd adapted to this environment, it wasn't a case of just, you know, knowing the market because they have teams that know the market. Well, it's, it was, it's because they have adapted a bit, a little bit like, you know, a, a, a biological species, you know, um, is, that is very well adapted to its environment. If you picked it up and put it somewhere else, you know, a penguin wouldn't work very well in the main forest. So I'm presuming from the research then that one of the conclusions probably was that, that life sciences, that leadership in the life sciences is different from, from other industries. But how, how so? What, what, what were the conclusions that, that you drew? Well, perhaps the first thing to say is that although the life sciences industry is different from other industries, within the life sciences industry, it's quite homogenous. You know, so some people have asked me here who've read the book, well, you know, is pharma different from medtech or is big pharma different from biotech? In terms of leadership style, it does not appear to be so. But it does appear to be different. Life sciences disappear, disappear to be different from other industries. And the origins of that, and the first thing that I talked about with the interviewees was, well, how is the industry different from other industries? And as always happens with these, you get you know reams and reams and reams of many thousands of words of, of answer that you, you have to analyze. But when you analyze that, it boils down to four ways that our industry is different from other industries. So I'll enumerate that then if that's okay. So the first one is that our industry has a social contract with society. So essentially, our industry says um, we will make money from people's misfortune. You know, we, you know, we touch people when they're the most vulnerable, when they're ill or dying. And so, and we, society says, okay, you can make money out of people that they're most vulnerable. Okay. But in return, we want innovation and extended life and better life and reduction in pain and improved quality of life. So it's a deal. It's a social contract we have. And, that doesn't really exist with other industries, not in the same way. And one of the implications of that, of course, is it means that our industry is not just about profit. So if you think about it for a moment, it's perfectly permissible in most of the industries 
from the CEO to stand on the stage and say, you know, it's all about the bottom line and driving profit and shareholder returns. Mm. Okay. And that's the normal fare for most shareholder meetings. Okay. But that doesn't happen in our industry. It's it's about more than that. It's about, well, we've got to make money in order to continue fulfilling the social contract, in order to continue curing disease and improving human life. So the first thing that makes our industry different from almost any other is the existence of the social contract. Mm. And that's a, an idea that's expressed typically of, yeah, in, in current terms, in terms of... Um, Patient centricity and uh, patient centric ideas, but in terms of the theme, that I suppose it's it, it's by no means a, a new idea for for the industry. It's it's something that's no, it's, it's 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 it's, it's, it's at the heart of the industry. I, mean, I, I would argue that patient centricity is a very narrow view of that because, of course, the patient is not the only customer. You know, the, the, it's no good being great for the patient if um, the healthcare system can't afford it, for example. So, um, but certainly the social contract is one of the things that makes our industry special. The second thing that they talked about was the complexity of the industry. Now, every industry says it's complex, of course, but just think about others, even that would call themselves complex, you know, you know, um, aviation or the automobile industry or the information technology industry. There aren't that many types of products. How many, how many types of airliner are there? How many types of passenger are there in the airline industry? There are at least 10,000 diseases. And that's before we even start adding in you know, other conditions and injuries and, and other things. So the market is, the needs are very complex. How many different technologies are there? How many different ways of um, meeting a clinical need are there? Many. So even on the delivery side, the value creation side, our industry is extremely complex. How many stages are there bringing a, a drug or a medical device to market? So the, the, the supply side of the market, as the economists would call it, is very, very complicated. But then on the demand side, not only are there many different types of diseases, but how diseases are treated in different situations are very hugely. There are many, many different types of certain um, medical specialities and even if you take that out of the system how many different types of healthcare system are there mm. and how many different even in if we take Europe which you know and everyone in Europe has a broadly similar healthcare system how many types of market access approaches are there so the market is incredibly complex on both the supply side and the demand side and um, that has um huge implications for how you lead because it means that no leader can simply say hmm, I understand what's going on, this is what we'll do. That is, you couldn't do it, it's mm. too complex. So managing complexity is the second um, huge difference. Now that's not to say that some other industries are not complex but if you say are oh, any as complex as life sciences then I struggle to, to think of one that that would be on that basis when you combine both value creation side and the value definition side, as I, as I would call it. Mm -hmm. And then the third factor that came out of that discussion came very strongly was the issue of risk. Now, business risk, of course, um, has two principal components. How much you're putting at risk, the, the asset you're putting at risk, and 
quantity you're putting at risk. The, you know, the, the, um, the type of risk it's facing. So, you know, how much are you betting and how risky is it? And how risky is it has components like um, technical risk, will it work, will it not work? Um, commercial risk, even if it works, will it sell? Won't it sell? And it also has a, an aspect of the longevity risk. So let's you know, think of it. There are very few industries that, that make bets as big as the pharmaceutical and medical device industry. You know, we, we have to place big bets by definition. And then the technical risk associated with them is much larger than most of the industries because the science is so difficult. I mean, look at what's happening in all the areas of neurology at the moment with companies pulling out of things like Parkinson's and, and, and um, Alzheimer's. Mm. It's because the science is just so complex. So, you know, with the greatest of respect to other industries, what other industry has that complexity of science? Um, then we come on to, so, you know, big books, huge amount of technical risk. Then there's the commercial risk. And you think about the complexity of market access and payer systems. It's very possible now to invent a great product, technically great, that works, that gets approved, and nobody will buy it. So that's a level of commercial risk, which is unusual mm. in, in our industry. And then there's the, the longevity. You know, most companies in most industries, you develop a product, you bring it to market, you launch it, and then if it's selling, that's it. The risk is over in the sense of, you don't have to worry. You know that it works, you know that it sells. Okay? But, you know, you ask a company, you ask a brand like Viox or a medical device company like G&G with the vaginal meshes, okay? years and years after it's come to market and been successful and been approved and sold, it, the risk come back, comes back and bites them. So the scale of the risk, the complexity of the risk and the longevity of the risk make our industry unusual. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a, a, a key factor. And then the fourth one that came out of the interviews was the um, composition of the workforce. And this is one of these that, you know, when you get told in an interview, you go, oh, why didn't I think of that before? But as one of the interviewees said, I think it was Deborah Dunsire at, at, at Lundbeck, she said, um, the hallmark of the industry is the, the, the way you have to concentrate an enormous amount of talent. And I thought for a second, how many industries have people of the level that we have, you know, world leading in their field? That's quite rare. We're not the only industry that does that, but we're quite unusual in that. And then, okay, how many industries have expertise, high level expertise spread so widely across the industry? Because we don't just have world leading, it's not just we have world leading science and drug discovery example. But you know what? We have world-leading economists in market access. And we have world-leading um, strategists in commercial. And we have world-leading lawyers and regulatory people in, in regulatory. So it's the level of expertise and the breadth of expertise. You know, we have, proportionately, we have very few low-skilled, low-paid workers in our industry. And that's very unusual. So you combine those things together, the workforce, the risk, the complexity of, of, of um, the industry, all of these factors. And what comes out is a picture of an industry that is exceptional. I'm not saying it's 
better than other industries, but it's exceptional in the sense of it's hard to see any other industry that has those levels of risks for that long in this sort of complexity and adding all those things together. That's, I think, what makes our industry exceptional and therefore makes the environment in which our leaders operate um, exceptional. The, 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 the environment that a, the leader of a pharmaceutical company works in is weird, odd, compared to most industries. Mm-hmm. So, I, um, looking then at the book itself and the um, leadership in the, uh, the life sciences, how does it differ from maybe some of your previous, perhaps more academic work? Um, how do you see um, maybe the audience for the book, or how when might it, when is it most likely to be picked up? Perhaps. Well, look, the audience of the book is anybody who works in the industry who is interested in leadership in the industry, independent of their function or their role or the type of company they work in. Mm-hmm. So. Um, But there is a psychographic segment that I, that I aimed it for. That is, a lot of the executives that I work with, they've quite often bought my books and not read them, which I find, you know, or at least certainly not read them cover to cover, which is understandable because the books like Darwin's Medicine and The Future of Pharma were, you know, 100,000 words, you know, dense arguments, um, lots of references and citations and data and so on. So, you know, they're, they're academic works. Mm. And so I, I wrote this, I remember saying to the publisher when I was initially discussing it, so I'm going, to write, I'm going to write a book for people who don't like to read. And she, she laughed at me. I said, well, you know, so what I mean by that is I'm going to make it much shorter. I want it to be of a total length that you can read on a, on a single long haul flight. And I want it to be chopped up into little small sections that are digestible. So each chapter will be no more than the... the length of a magazine article. And I'm going to, although it will be academically rigorous, I'm going to leave all of the academic arguments and citations and references and the rest of that stuff out of it. They, they will be in the academic papers that I also write around the book that will go in the journals. But, you know, I want this book to be, I want them to pick this book up and go, oh yeah, I could read that easily. And in fact, that's what's happened because it's, it's physically it's about a third of the thickness of, mm-hmm. of other books I've written. Um, and it's it's meant to be very quick to read. And I've, I've had it, emails from people already saying, you know, they read it on, I think a flight from London to Moscow was the last one I heard. Um, so that's a length of flight. Um, and that's what it was aimed at. But it's it's not aimed at a, a particular role or a particular person. It's, it's aimed at people who work in the industry, perhaps aspire to lead in the industry, and they want to know what their CEO knows. So one of the ways I describe the book is inherent in the book is 700 years of leadership experience in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to condense that down to a book you can read in a, in a small number of hours. And of course, you, you yourself have um, a number of years, not 700 of course, but a number of years um, of uh, management and leadership um, experience from your, your career in the industry. And then also more, more latterly is um, as an academic, perhaps um, leading mentoring teams of PhD um, students. So, well, I mean, I worked in the industry for twenty years before I, you know, as a as a research scientist and then as a in commercial before I, I became an academic. So, you know, I'm, I'm used to working in, in teams and, and and leading leading groups in the industry. And of course, now, in addition to my academic 
research in Hertfordshire and at Bacoli and all that. I, um, I also work with uh, leadership teams in the industry and watch how they work and see how they work. And, and you know, quite often I'm employed as a kind of uh, mentor or coach for, for leaders in the industry where they'll talk to me about their issues and their challenges where they need an independent sounding board. So there's lots of real-world experience attached to this. But I think this, the storm of the show in this book, I think, is not my thinking so much as these 23 very wise, very experienced people who, who opened up to me and told me what they think. Mm-hmm. So, in looking at the, the the ten lessons from these very experienced uh, people that, that you you spoke to, um, what, what what was most surprising to you? If you can pick out one one lesson, was there anything that, that stood out? There, there were two, I think, um, and I'm not sure if surprising is the word I'd use so much as um, fundamental things that, that that when I when they. The lessons emerged from the you know, hundreds of thousands of words of interview transcript. I, I, I sat, if I'm honest, I sat at home with a beer thinking, hmm, that is what you need to know. And one of the men, forgive me, I'll, I'll have to digress into a bit of technical jargon, but um, one of them is, is, is the big issue. So imagine if you ask these very experienced CEOs, what's the big issue. What's the big problem you face? What's the central core challenge of your job? And although they wouldn't use this word because it's a technical word, the issues they're called bicongruence. Bicongruence. So let me explain what I mean by that. It probably goes without saying that to succeed in in the pharmaceutical industry or the medical technology industry, your people need to be world-class at what they do. And what I mean by that is your marketers need to be world-class marketers, your chemists have to be world-class chemists, your economists have to be world-class economists, and, and so they have to be at the edge of their field. And as the industry gets more complex and more difficult, the expertise of marketers has to become more expert, and the expertise of the economists has to become more expert. We all become more expert. Now, the jargon for that in the, the academic literature is called macro congruence because it means that the expertise of those functions has to be congruent with the outside world the macro world so you know I, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast will be surprised when i say excellent companies have groups of people silos of people who are absolutely brilliant at their individual function whether that is marketing or market access or discovery or regulatory or whatever it is. But here's the rub. The other obvious thing, of course, is that in order for a company to be effective, all of those different functions have to work together, have to coordinate. Mm -hmm. But as you become more specialised and more expert, more brilliant at whatever it is you do, your language becomes narrower, your worldview becomes more tightly focused, you become, for part of a better shorthand, you become more kicky. And what, and there, there are two, uh, some seminal work in the sociology of how businesses work, talked about, okay, so the geeks have to become, be very macro-congruent with their environment, but they also have to be 
congruent with their internal environment, and they call that micro-congruence. And you have to achieve both at once, which is called a bicongruence. The problem is, of course, that as you become ever more geeky in order to become macro-congruent, it becomes ever harder to stay micro-congruent. So if you've ever worked in a small organisation where everybody was generalists and everybody understands each other's job and everybody knows how to work together, it's easy. But you work in a large organisation where everybody is increasingly and ever more so geeky, then achieving that bicongruence becomes ever harder. And although the executives didn't, the CEOs didn't use this word because they, they, they described it in different ways, I sat there thinking they're describing Borella Morgan's congruency hypothesis. That's what they're saying. And essentially what these CEOs say is, my big job is to get all the bits to work together. The corollary of that is actually, they don't seem to worry too much about any individual function. They don't say, well, I'm an R&D guy, the best R&D guys. I'm a regulatory guy, the best regulatory guys. They leave that to the functional leaders. Okay. Is, is it just an assumption? That well, I wouldn't say they were assumption. Always, they were always they, they, they were work very hard at recruiting the right people to lead to functions, and they work very hard at, um, at, at coaching them, developing them, and enabling them. Um, but they basically take the view of that, I am not well as a CEO. I would not be well placed to know if my regulatory people are doing the best regulatory job. But my head of regulatory ought to be. Mm. And that's yeah. So yeah. they're very good at delegating about and they see their job as, as stitching the organisation together. And this is more than just cross-functional meetings. Mm. Um, one of the interviewees, um, Louise Makin at BTG, was very, very lucid and very bright when she spoke. She said, so for instance, if I get a head of marketing, I don't want a member of parliament for marketing. I want someone who can integrate marketing into the organisation. And I, I, I listened, to that, and that's how she sees her job, and all the others did too. It's about making all the bits work together. And that's the essence. So that was the, you know, I, I, I suppose I'd, I'd had an unconscious thought before the research that, you know, they go around the different departments making sure that each different department or function is part of value chain is working well. Actually, their main job is about stitching the bits of the, the value chain together. And that, that was a, a striking, you know, fascinating thing to, to listen to. It, particularly so since they all said the same thing in different words, in different ways, with different examples. But as I sat there, I said, what's the big issue that what takes up your time, what keeps you awake at night, ask questions like that. And they would all come back to this, um, well, I know we can be great at discovery and development and regulatory and marketing and market access. I know we can be, any company can be good at those things. What makes a good company a great company is the way that these things are stitched together. And they talked about how as each of the individual processes, business process becomes more specialised and more geeky in my terms, that it becomes ever harder to keep them done because they, they become like tribes and they speak different languages and look at world different ways. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. And uh, in, in addition to that then, we, we can certainly track the way the, the industry itself has evolved to borrow terminology mm-hmm. that roughly from, from some of the Darwin's uh, medicine way, way of thinking and, and how how the industry continues to change and um, react to the circumstances. 
But in terms of leadership in the life sciences, were, were there other, did the research bring out other ways in which that's changing or sort of other directions of tra travel in terms of the things that there are, there are, there are, there are 10 chapters that we each describe a different lesson that I'm mm. learning. And, 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 you know, unless we want this podcast to be three hours long, <laughs> then, you know, you'd be best to be. Good. But to come back to the things that I found, I wouldn't say any of the lessons were more important than the others. Um, um, I think some of them I found more, um, they made me smile more. They made me think, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Isn't that interesting? Um, so one of the things that came out we're trained as academic researchers to, um, I wouldn't say read between the lines, but to um, induce from what you read what, what pieces of insight, you know. And one of the things is I read through all of the transcripts, is I, and this had not been on my radar at all, so it came as, a, as an eye-opener, was how frequently and often and consistently the interviewees used um, metaphors and figures of speech and rhetorical techniques. And then I realised that in the chapter, I've called it in the, that chapter, but I've said words are important. They realised that for like one of the core skills, the core capabilities that a leader has that, that you can't live without is the use of language. And it goes beyond just media training and, and being Oh yeah, and, 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 and it goes far, it seems to go far beyond um, you know, ordinary good communication skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you wouldn't get, get to even be a middle manager without reasonable communication skills. Um, but these guys seem to have intuited that to be a leader, you need to convey not just information, but emotion. And, and then clarity um, in in ways that require more than just normal communication skills. So I, I heard, you know, lots of cleverly constructed metaphors and, and patterns and rhythms of speech that um, uh, I asked one of the interviewees. Uh, so there's a dilemma, isn't there, in all companies, but particularly in pharma companies. Um, between uh, the employees and the shareholders and the patients, you know, because you know, simply put, na naively, a caricature would say, you know, the customers want fantastic products for free, and the uh, employees want to go do their own thing and want to be paid very well for it, and don't necessarily want to follow the plan, and the shareholders want huge returns for no risk. I mean, that's a, it's a caricature of the story. Sure. But you see, that, that you, that, I say that to illustrate the tensions. So, so which is most important then? You know, shareholders, employees, or, or customers. And um, one of the uh, interviewees, um, it was Andrew Thompson that uh, brought his health. And he, uh, he said, uh, it's like um, a food and water. So he says, well, he says, well, you're... Um, State shareholders like food. If you don't, you know, if you don't have it, if you don't have returns and so on, then you will starve, no doubt. Mm. But it will take some time. Okay? Says so your um, your customers are like water. 
if you don't have a good supply of customers, you will um, die of thirst and much quicker than you would start the day. Mm. Okay? Um, but you can manage, you can live, live several days, perhaps a couple of weeks without water. Um, it says, but your employees are like a. He says, if someone switches the air off, you don't need, need to worry about water or food. As you will last minutes. Mm. And no, you you, know, you may agree or disagree with his point. I thought it was a very strong point, but it's an example of how well he made it. And I sat there thinking, wow, that that's about if I was one of his employees and sit and listen to him talk mm. like that, I'd go, that's much more powerful. You know, sometimes you hear cant about, you know, our employees are our greatest resource and all this stuff. And, mm. People in the meeting nod, and yeah, yeah, and then, then, but you spend most of your time worrying about the shareholders, you know, and, and you, you see inconsistencies in leaders' approaches. But people like Andrew Thompson get the message across by saying, you know, phrases like that. You know, um, somebody else, I think it was um, Namal at, uh, at Smith and Nephew, said, you know, um, we touch people at the most vulnerable part of their lives. So he's talking about social contract. We touch people at the most vulnerable part of their lives. So our business is always going to be controversial. Yeah, that's a, that's a fundamental point. Like all great points, when you hear it or when you read it, you go, well, that's obvious, isn't it? But it's only obvious with hindsight. Mm. You know? um, and, you know, when I was reading this this morning, actually, about the industry's reputation problems and when and and why are they so unusual and not in their own evolutionary reasons for that and perhaps we'll talk about it in another podcast <laughs> um, but I remember thinking yeah that fact that um, as you know Alan Hillgrove said it at, at, um, at Boringer he painted a sort of word picture he said look you know there's this intersection between uh, business and health and, and science and where those three intersect it's always going to be difficult isn't it and that so he, you know, Venn diagram that he painted in my head as he spoke, mm. and he'd obviously used the, the metaphor before, uh, was very, very powerful. So if I, it's one of those lessons that if I was talking to a young aspiring leader in the industry, um, that I think that you're really taught actually the power of words. And that was one of the, mm. well, I think that's lesson eight or nine in the book that I mentioned. And um, and I just came away thinking I didn't expect to hear that. That's really great. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, very powerful point. So I mean, to, to sum up, thanks. Of course, we don't want to go through go through all, all of the lessons. That's for the readers of, of, of the book to um, pick it up and um, uh, dip into um, themselves. But it's a, it's a nice, manageable, slim volume um, to, to get through. It's broken down into into, into ten lessons. Uh, um, how would how do you think the readers would, would be best placed to make sense of those those ten ten lessons? So I'll come back to what I said earlier on. A lot of the books that exist already are prescriptive. This is how you should read. Yeah. And I think that the bottom line that one can take out of the book is that that prescriptive approach just doesn't make sense. I think and I think leadership is an adaptive process. I think leadership is about a good leader is the one who fits with his environment. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, I talk about the four factors that make our industry a 
very unusual environment, habitat for a leader. And good leadership is about adapting to those four special conditions of the social contract and the risk and the complexity of the workforce and so on. And that obviously, so if I was asked to, you know, in an, if I was asked to elevate on what does this book say, I'd say leadership is an adaptive process. Mm-hmm. And if it was a tall building with a long area flight, <laughs> I'd say, and this book contains nine ways that these hugely experienced leaders have learned to adapt. Not forgetting, of course, that these are all people who, whose careers would, by anybody's standards, be classed as successful. They're all mm. at the top of the game and the top of the industry and, you know, all very admirable exemplary leaders. So they've, they've learned to adapt to this unusual habitat of an exceptional industry. And if I was talking to a, a young aspirant leader, I'd say, well, you have to learn to adapt in your own way. Because one of the chapters is about how leadership is a very individual process, yeah, very much built on individual um, personal traits and characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to learn how to adapt. But in order to learn how to adapt, you have to understand why the environment is, how the environment is special. And if you want to adapt faster than anybody else, then a good way to do that is to ask a whole load of people who've learned how to do it, which is what the book is about. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating chat, and thanks. Thank you for joining once again the, the Farmer Forum podcast. It's, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And that rounds off another episode of the Farmer Forum podcast and my chat with Professor Brian D. Smith on leadership in the life sciences industry. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information for other installments in the series at farmerforum.com forward slash podcast. The podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and Stitcher, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Farmer Forum. And don't forget to visit our website to sign up for daily or weekly email pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins. And also follow us on Twitter, where we are at Pharma Forum.